It's Elisha, not Elijah. Don't get them mixed up. We get real serious about it here. I'm just kidding. All right, yes, Elisha, a tale of ridiculous faith. And it, this series, I'll be honest with you, it's pretty crazy. Um, and I'm not saying that because, you know, the word ridiculous or anything like that. But what I do want to say is that this Elisha guy has a much crazier life, a much crazier tale, if you will, than many of us probably have ever, have ever known or, or ever knew. Um, in fact, the, he was one of the guys who performed the most miracles in the Bible. In fact, he was number two. He performed the second most miracles in the Bible. Now, I'm sure up in heaven, all the prophets and all them, they're counting their, you know, who got the most miracles? Ah, yeah, see, see closer to Jesus, you know? Um, but I'm sure, I'm sure they're doing all that up there. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but we, we all know who performed the most miracles, right? You know, Jesus, right? Okay, so he's up there, and anybody who wants to compare to him, he's like, just take a seat. I got you right here, okay? Um, no, but Elisha really did have a crazy a crazy life that took a lot of faith. I mean, if we're being honest, to have a crazy life that involves everything he did, he had to have just crazy monumental faith. And because we're talking about his faith, because we're talking about his life, um, we don't want you to just learn from it. We don't just want you to learn that Elisha had an amazing life, did a lot of miracles, and you know his faith was one like nobody else's. You know, that's not what we want exactly for you to have after this series. What we want you to have after this series is we want you to have an opportunity to have ridiculous faith yourself. And so at the end of this series, we'll say we're going to give you a challenge, if you will, a challenge for you yourself to attempt to have ridiculous faith. Now, some of you are probably thinking, well, how's he going to do that? This is called a tease, ladies and gentlemen. You don't know everything until the end. So, you know, keep you on your toes. Might come back in, four, in three weeks until the end of the series. Um, but, yes, this is a four-week series. Um, it's going to be ending in August, okay? If you don't want to do the math on how many four weeks from now, you know, if you don't want to do the math, August 20th, okay, is going to be the final day of this series. So mark it on your calendar. So I've got to be at church August 20th so I can... So I can be there for the end of the series. I can receive the challenge. Tell it to your spouse if you have to so because they remember things better than you. Now I have a spouse, and I can just tell her everything. I'm like, hey, I'm not going to remember any of this. Just tell me it later on when it comes to time. You know, surely I'll have to be here on August 20th. Um, but, but do all that, and I'll tell you right now, if on August 20th you're on vacation, cancel it right now. All right, got to be here. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, if you, but for, for, for real, if you are going to be gone or if you have other plans, things like that, and you know you aren't going to be able to make it, but you do want to still kind of go through this challenge of having ridiculous faith with us, um, just go ahead and let me or Craig or Larry know, um, and we'd be more than happy to fill you in, kind of keep you involved um, with what we're doing here. Um, but, but you guys are probably asking yourselves, what is ridiculous faith? All right? You know, I, and I think it's kind of it's weird because we use words all the time that don't really mean what they actually mean. Like the word ridiculous, it, it doesn't really mean what we're using it for here today. I mean, when, you, when I looked up the definition of ridiculous in the dictionary, yes, I do own a dictionary, I can read, um, but when I looked up the word ridiculous in the dictionary, I got words like um, absurd, so let's you know, try to use a tale of absurd faith. Eh, that didn't really fit. Um, silly, a tale of silly faith. That doesn't really fit, I don't think so. Um, a tale of crazy faith. Well, crazy kind of fits if you use it the right way, but still not exactly 
right. Um, and the other word I saw was laughable. And so I can tell you right now, we're not telling you a tale of laughable faith. That's not what we're doing. Um, but instead, we're kind of using this ridiculous word the same way we use other words. All right? And just to kind of give you an idea of what I mean, think of the word cool. All right? The word cool does not actually mean what we say it is. All right? When we think of cool, what do we think of? We think of chilly. We think of calm. You know, that's like, those are like the actual meanings of the word. But when I use the word cool, all right, if I'm looking at somebody, I'm like, man, that's a cool haircut, you know? I don't mean it like, you know, that's a chilly haircut, man, or that's a, that haircut just really calms me, you know? It's, it's nothing like that. It means, man, that's exceptional, or that's awesome, just things like that, all right? We, we also do it with this other word, sick, all right? The word sick, okay, for many of us, it doesn't actually mean fed up or blah or gross or anything like that, all right? You know, when, when I... Back in the day, when I was going to high school dances, I know I say back in the day, um, but when I was going to high school dances, all the kids were looking at me, and they'd say, man, those, that guy's dance moves were sick, yo, you know? You know? I, so we use these different words from, from what they don't really mean, but we kind of make them our own. And so this ridiculous word, yes, it does actually mean laughable and absurd, crazy, silly. What we really mean it as is we mean it as, like, it's better than or... Um, it's greater than something we have ever seen or known or anything like that. Um, I'll tell you, I actually used this sentence the other day, word for word. I said, that cake is ridiculously good. All right? You don't think I'm saying laughable, but you know what I mean when I say the cake is ridiculously good. All right? And so when we say that Elisha, he had ridiculous faith, and we say that we want to all of us have ridiculous faith, we realize that it doesn't mean laughable, it doesn't mean crazy, it doesn't mean silly or anything like that. We know that it means a faith that's better than what we've had before, a faith that is greater than any other faith that we've ever experienced personally. So we, we, can, we can tell that over these next three weeks, when we hear these stories about Elisha, that he had ridiculous faith. I mean, next week we're going to talk about, I know this sounds crazy, we're going to talk about these people dug a ditch, all right? And I know you're probably thinking to yourself, why in the world are we reading a story about these people who dug a ditch or have ridiculous faith about it, all right? I tell you right now, this story is way cooler than what it actually sounds like, just digging a ditch, all right? I'm, I'm sure anybody here who ever dug a ditch, you know it's not exciting, it's not cool, it's just hard work, hard labor, and you get all muddy afterwards, all right? But it's a, such a cool story, and it teaches us that in order to have ridiculous faith, Sometimes you have to think big, but realize that you can't always start big. That you can think big, but starting small is how you actually get to where you were thinking about. All right? And, and, and the next one after that is going to be something along the lines of um, a widow and how she is in the process of losing her two sons. And we learn that in our, in our desperation, when we, when we are feeling like there is nowhere else to turn, we who have ridiculous faith can realize that it's not about what I don't have. It's not about what God has not given me. It's about focusing on what God has given me. You see, ridiculous faith doesn't focus on, oh, I wish God was doing this in my life. Why in the world is he doing this? It doesn't focus on that. It focuses on, this is what God has given me, and I'm going to do something with it. And, and the last one after that is going to focus on re-having, re re-having, re-getting, whatever, Getting back your spiritual edge. Because having a ridiculous faith doesn't mean that you never lose your passion or you never lose your spiritual edge. I think all of us can say, 
at some point in our lives, we've lost passion about something or another. But having a ridiculous faith doesn't mean you never lose your passion. It means that when you lose your passion, you're able to get it back. You're able to have that spiritual edge again and be just as on fire, if not more on fire, about God than you were before. And you see, this Elisha guy, he was, I would say, near perfect at being able to have his ridiculous faith through his desperation, through um, starting small but thinking big, all those things. And just to give you a little bit of background on him, I mentioned Elijah earlier. He was only able to do all of these things because of this man, Elijah, who he met. And that's actually what we're going to talk about. All right? But I will warn you, last week I did teach the kids' class a lesson on Elijah. So if I start getting, like, mixed up or if I start saying Elisha, like, really get into it, that's just for me. It's not because I want you to, like, know it really well. In fact, you know what? I just have an idea. We're going to go kids' style for a second. Okay, we learned in the kids' class the difference between Elijah and Elisha. So we're, we're all going to do it here. I am the children's pastor, so it only is fitting that we do stuff that we do in the kids' class here. All right, so Elijah was the prophet. He was older, okay? Elisha was his student or his assistant, some might say. All right, now let me ask you. Those of you who have kids, those of you who work with kids, those of you who have ever seen a kid, all right? You don't even have to work with kids or no kids to know this. Okay, but those of you who have ever seen a kid, what do you do when you're sitting around or you're just trying to maybe you just enjoy the TV for two seconds or maybe, maybe you're in the classroom and you just want the kids to do their test for two seconds and not have to worry about screaming at a kid for yelling? All right, what do you do when the kids start talking or getting loud? You turn them, shh, just like that. Yeah, yeah, just like that. You say, shh. All right, well, another example. What happens if maybe, you know, perfect example, you're here at church and that darn children's pastor let the kids out early and they're all running around and things like that and you're trying to talk to another person and they're hanging on your arm or they're on your leg, mommy, daddy, you know, doing whatever. All right, what do you do? You turn to that kid and you say, shh. You know, it's not just kids though. All right, people who are younger than you just in general sometimes. I mean, like, perfect example, you know, Larry, when I go to him and I have an idea, I say, Larry, I got an idea, but it's going to cost the church some money. What's he do to me? He looks at me and he says, shh, you know? Like that, that, we do this to younger people all the time, and sometimes older people too, but we all know we're going to smack him if we do it to somebody older. All right? So just know that that's the difference between Elijah and Elisha. Elijah was a prophet. Elisha was younger, his assistant, because let's face it, Elijah was probably looking over to Elisha all the time and being like, shh, come on, man. I'm working here, you know? And we, and we are able to realize this through our story, all right? And so if you, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to 1 Kings chapter 19. If not, it's on the screen. Don't worry. I got gotcha. you, okay? 1 Kings chapter 19 says this. Um, so Elisha went and found Elisha, or Elijah. See, I did it right there. I told you guys I was going to do it. So Elijah went out and found Elisha, son of, and you guys know Old Testament names are crazy, okay? Shaphat, Shaphat, something like that. Uh, plowing a field, there were 12 teams of oxen in the field, and Elisha was plowing with the 12th team. Elijah went over to him and threw his cloak across his shoulders and then walked away. Elisha left, and the oxen standing there, or left the oxen standing there, ran after Elijah and said to him, First let me go and kiss my father and mother goodbye, and then I will go with you. Elijah replied, Go on back, but think about what I have done to you. Continues on. So Elisha returned to his oxen and slaughtered them. He used the wood from the plow to burn a fire to roast their flesh. 
He passed around the meat to the townspeople, and they all ate. Then he went with Elijah as his assistant. Now, you guys know the Old Testament's kind of crazy sometimes. He slaughtered him and passed the meat around. You know, I think it's kind of a fun way to say it, personally. But uh, No, he, he did all of these things. He did all of this just to follow Elijah. And you're probably thinking to yourself, What's the, what, what was Elisha's life like? Well, I'll tell you what his life was like. He was pretty ordinary, except that he had a pretty wealthy family. And I'm, I, I'm just speculating here that he had a wealthy family. It doesn't like say in the Bible later on, and Elisha was wealthy. You know, it doesn't say anything like that. I'm just speculating because I think if we really think about it, his family had 12 teams of oxen. Now, if you know, you know, kind of Bible terminology because it's weird, or they say, some versions say yokes, all right? Bible terminology, that means like two. So like both oxen were pulling the plow together. All right, so that means that this family had farmland big enough where they needed 24 oxen in order to plow it all. Now, I don't know about you, but if any of you own 24 oxen today, you're doing pretty well. All right? I mean, if I own 24 oxen, I'm obviously doing pretty well too. But like, just 24 oxen today, imagine how well they were doing back then financially to have 24 oxen just sitting in the backyard, and not to mention that, just the land. The land they had to have to have to have 24 oxen to do that. You know, but, but I want to go back to verse 19 for a second and read that one more time. So verse 19, all right? We're going to kind of skip ahead a little bit. Don't forgive me. But anyways, uh, there were 12 teams of oxen in the field, and Elisha was plowing with the 12th team. Elijah went over to him and threw his cloak across his shoulders, and then walked away. You see, I think we can all agree. If your coworkers are oxen, that's not a very good job. You know, but you guys are probably thinking to yourself, you're like, oh, dude, you don't know the coworkers I have. <laughs> you don't know them. And I'm like, well, let me just put this in perspective for a minute. Elisha's job would entail hard work, pushing the plow and making sure it was right, boring work of just walking behind these oxen all day, and some smelly work, because you know what. Um, and also, just repeated work. I mean, imagine when you're mowing your grass. You know, when you're mowing grass, you're going a straight line, maybe a curve. You might do it throwing a zigzag here or there just to make it fancy, you know. But when you're doing that, like, it's not, it's not the most exciting work, work in the world. It's just kind of repeated. You know, every, time, every now and then you run into a tree, and you're like, oh, man, some excitement, you know. But for the most part, it's not very exciting work. And so Elisha was working a hard, boring, smelly job. I mean, just go ahead and think about it for a second. Working with oxen, all right? Working with an ox, just one ox, all right? He doesn't speak your language. You're trying to talk to him, like, come on, man, move. And he's being, he's being ornery, and he's, he's being stubborn, all right? I'm sure you all work with ornery and stubborn people, but I'm sure it does not compare to this at all, okay? Well, not only that, but you're staring at his rear end all day, like, I, I'm sorry, but if any of you are in a job where you're staring at your coworker's rear end all day, please get out now. Like, that is not the job for you, okay? But he's doing that, and then, like I said, the smell had to be awful, all right? These, these oxen, they don't bathe, all right? And if they do bathe, it's not a very good shower or bath or whatever, all right? This had to be terrible, terrible work for Elisha to do. But in the midst of all this terrible work, here comes Elijah. I'm sure when some of you kind of read what I read there with the cloak being thrown around his shoulders, you're kind of wondering, well, what, what does that mean? Why is this such a big deal? He threw, you know, I, gave, I give my wife my coat all the time so that way she can be warm. Like, it's not that big of a deal. Well, back then it was. 
for your robe or your cloak, for you to take that off and put that onto somebody else, especially when you're a prophet, especially when you're somebody on high authority like he is. To take that off and to put it on somebody else, that's not just saying, here, you're cold, take this. All right? What's that saying? Is that saying to you, I want, I want to be with you. I want to care for you. I want to mentor you. I want to give you refuge. I want to take you from where you are now and show you the path that God has for you. All right? He wasn't just offering him a cloak here. He's offering so much more. In the Old Testament, we see so much symbolism and things like that. But we see the symbol of the cloak here, meaning from Elijah to Elisha. Take what I have and it is now yours. And not only is he saying I'll mentor you, but I will teach you everything that I know so that someday when I'm gone, you can know it all and you can teach somebody else and so on and so forth. And so, yeah, it is just, it is just a robe. It is just a, a coat or whatever. But it means so much more than that. Because, you see, I'm going to give you all a life tip for a second. All right? I know I'm not too good with life tips, but this one I'm pretty confident on. All right, leadership is meant to be selfless. I'm sure all of you are in a situation where you're either being led, you are leading somebody, you have led somebody, or you're going to lead somebody in the future. Let me just go ahead and give you a tip right now that leadership is meant to be selfless. Because I can think we can all agree that if one of our leaders, one of our employers, was to look at us one day and just to say, hey, you know what? What I'm working on right now is not very important. I see that what you're working on is a little bit more important. I want to help you with that. If you were to get that, some of you might be, you know, some of you might fall out of your seat, you know. Ah. But for the most part, we, we would love that. We would love for somebody to be or our leader, for somebody who's, who's doing that, to just say, hey, look, my stuff, you know, I'll get that done later. But your stuff, you've got a family to go home and see. you got this. Like, let me just help you out real fast. Let me do this for you. Because, I mean, let's... Like, let's, let's just think about it for one second, all right? If we are leaders, if we are showing somebody God, and we are doing our best to lead them not only towards God, but just in life in general, the best way to do that is for you to walk up to them and say, how can I help you? I learned that a while back. The question you don't want to ask is, why aren't you doing this? The question you don't want to ask is, hey, what, what's the deal? What's, what's going on here? The question you don't want to ask is, are you doing anything important? Those aren't the questions you want to ask. The question as a leader that gains you respect from the people you're leading more often than not is how can I help? How can I help? And I realize that I'm not always perfect at that. I don't always do the right thing that way. But I realize that when I do approach somebody with how can I help, that type of mentality, my effort is so much better received and so much better done. And so, like I said, that's that's a little bit of a leadership tip or step, whatever you want to call it. But not only do we have that from the story, but we have two other ways that we can see that we can have ridiculous faith or ridiculous commitment from this story here. I mean, it's only three verses, but we're already getting two ways here that we can have ridiculous faith or ridiculous commitment. Step number one, I would say, is you don't have to understand fully to obey immediately. All right, so you're, you may be asking yourself, what does that mean? I'll say it again. You do not have to understand fully to obey immediately. Sometimes in life, you're not going to have every single detail in the world for whatever you're doing. I know. I, I, I don't like it. I, I love details whenever I'm doing something. When I, like, whenever I'm getting ready to do something, somebody asks me to do something, I'm like, I'm asking every single question about it. Well, what do I do here? Well, what about here? You know, because I, I want to do it right. 
And so I'm asking for every single detail. All right, but we see here that we aren't going to always receive every detail. Like Elisha, he didn't receive every detail when Elijah spoke to him. And verse 20, I will just read it again real fast. Elisha left the oxen standing there and run, ran after Elijah and said to him, first let me go and kiss my father and mother goodbye, and then I'll go with you. He ran right away. He didn't make up a pros and cons list. He didn't ask a counselor for help or anything like that. He didn't ask Elijah any questions. He got the cloak. Elijah started walking away, and he realized, this is my moment. This is my opportunity. I don't have every detail, but I know this is what God has in store for me. And sometimes in our lives, it's going to be like that. In fact, you know, I kind of question bringing this up, but, you know, what the Bible says, that's what it says. And I think one thing that I noticed here that was strange was there was no prayer or anything. And I, I'm a huge advocate for prayer. I, I, I always want to pray about every decision I make and, and things like that, and I want other people to. And that's why it's so difficult for me to look at this and be like, how did he not even like pray? How did he just say, look, that guy's doing this, and I got it. He must have been so obedient, so entwined with God already that he knew that his calling was coming, and at that point he knew that was his calling. Because you see, God does this thing where he doesn't give us every single detail all the time. And, and I know it from my life, and I think if you really think about it, you'll, you'll know it from yours. All right? and, and honestly, I know it from Scripture as well. All right? let's, think, let's all think of Jonah. All right? Like I said, we're going kid style. Okay? Everyone here, for the most part, knows about Jonah, knows the story of Jonah. Okay? If you don't know the story of Jonah super well, all right, quick version right here. Guy was supposed to go to Nineveh, didn't really go to Nineveh. He went on a boat, tried to escape, and then he got thrown overboard on the boat. The whale, or the fish, if some people want to say, one came over and swallowed him up, and they spit him back on land, and then Jonah went to the city. He got mad because when he went to the city and said all these things, he went up back up on the hill, and he just sat there and watched for it to burn, but it didn't burn. So that's the story of Jonah. Um, but, but the story of Jonah, we think about what Jonah did and how God told him to do these things. Do you realize that in the story of Jonah, God only talked to him twice before he went to Nineveh. Scripture only references God talking to Jonah twice. And it's at the very beginning, and then it's at right, be- right after he gets spit out by the whale. God doesn't speak to him when he's on the boat. God doesn't speak to him when he's waiting for the boat. God doesn't speak to him when he's inside the whale or anything like that. God is silent, and God doesn't give him every single detail. Because from when God does speak to him, he doesn't say much. Basically, when God speaks to him, he says, go and preach, the first time. And the second time, he says, go and preach. I mean, if I'm thinking about it, I'm like, dude, I'm going to Nineveh. I'm going to this wicked city. You can give me a little bit more help than that. Where do I go? Who do I talk to? What's his address? I need, you know, like what? I I need this type of stuff to be able to know for me to go and preach. But God doesn't give him every single detail. Just like in our lives, we're not going to get every single detail sometimes. And even though it did take a little while for Jonah to listen, he eventually listened and obeyed. And it's the same thing in Matthew, all right? Peter, okay? Some of us, most of us probably know the story of Jesus walking on water, okay? Jesus is walking on water. The people see him, ah, they freak out, okay? And then Peter walks on water. He falls in the water because he took his eyes off Jesus, right? Okay, well, when it was leading up to the point for Peter to walk on the water, Jesus only says two things to Peter. Don't be afraid. Come here. 
I mean, if I was Peter, I'd be like, okay, like toes first, or like, like, can I put my hand in and feel how cold it is first? You know, like I'd be kind of like skeptical about it. Like, do I just run so fast that I don't get on the water? Like, I don't know what to do here. But no, Jesus just says, don't be afraid and come. That's all he tells him to do. So oftentimes we're we're in this life where we don't have every single detail we need, or that we think that we need. And honestly, I'm going to make it pretty simple for you today. I found out five areas of our lives where we really don't need a whole lot of details for, but sometimes we think we need more details. And so for these five areas, I'm going to go ahead and give you a one-word or a few-word response on how to handle these areas of your life with not much detail. Because I really don't think we need that much detail. We just, we want more detail. All right? Church, commit, health, trust. Ideas, start. Children, adopt. Bad dating, break yourself up with that bum, come on, you know? Like, but but if, we, if we really think about it, if we really look at this, these are areas of our lives we don't need a whole lot of detail for, but we seem to more often than not want more detail. And I don't know if it's true in your life, but I know it's true in mine, is oftentimes I use this detail response as kind of like an out. Like, oh, well, I don't have every detail, so I can't do that. I don't know every part of the story, so I can't believe that. But that's just a silly way to think. And I know it is, but I still think like that sometimes. And, and, and realizing that our thoughts and things like that about details are not always what we need. But instead, we would just commit, if we would just trust, if we would just start, if we would just adopt, if we would just break ourselves up with that bum we would realize that we don't need every detail to do it. And so step number two is those who God uses the most hold on the least. What I mean by that is God calls all of us to things. And what I've seen in my life is those who who feel like they are called the most, those who feel like they're doing the most, they're able to do that because they are holding on the least to other things. Here, we'll, we'll look, last verse right here. All right, verse 21, it says, So Elisha returned to his oxen and slaughtered them. He used the wood from the plow to build a fire to roast their flesh. He passed around the meat to the townspeople, and they all ate. Then he went with Elijah as his assistant. We can tell here that Elisha was not holding on very much at all. Elisha was willing to say, Look, that life back there, I'm willing to burn every bridge back to that life. Because let's be honest, if you're... if it, if you're working for your family, and especially back then, okay, if you're working for your family, and all of a sudden you're like, well, here's 100 bucks. I'm just going to throw that in the fire. Oh, here's, here's uh, the next seven meals for the week. I'm going to go ahead and make all those and then give them out to everybody else. You know, like, family's not going to be very happy with you. And there was no way that Elisha was welcomed back into this family after he went and did something like that. After he was willing to go and destroy property, and after he was willing to go and just pass around meat, that was for his family. To be willing to do that would, what I call, a bridge-burning faith. See, having a bridge-burning faith means that you're willing to burn any bridge to anything if that is not directly helping you follow God. That is not directly helping you be who God wants you to be. I mean, one, one place we look at it is in Luke chapter 5, verses 8 through 11, okay? Um, we're not going to read them, but I'll tell you, yeah, they're up there, so if you want to read them, you can. But basically what happens is Simon Peter 
at this point, Simon Peter, he goes out, he fishes in the water, just, just like he, he always does, and he comes back with this huge haul that Jesus predicted, and he said, dude, you know exactly what you're doing. And he says, follow me. He doesn't give him many details. He just says, follow me. And Simon Peter and these other men had no regard for what they had. They didn't, go say, they didn't say, hey, Jesus, let us go tie up this boat. Let us go bring these fish in so that way, you know, we're not on bad terms with whoever, you know, we don't. But instead, they left the fish there. They left the boat there. And to be honest, they probably are never going to get that job back. Even if it was their own boat, they're probably never going to be able to get a boat back after going on this journey with Jesus. You see, they were, they were willing to bridge, or they were willing to burn the bridge back to their old life so that way they could be fully committed to a new life with Jesus. And, and, and if you haven't been listening at all, just listen right here because I'm, I'm finishing up right now, okay? A bridge-burning faith is still responsible. I want us to know that. A bridge-burning faith is still responsible. I don't want you to think that after today, you know, you need to call up your employer or whatever and say, I quit my job because it's not good for me. You know, I don't want you to quit your job right after this or whatever. Like, it's still responsible. But I do want you to seriously consider, are there things in your life, are there things going on right now that seem to be taking away your focus, taking away your time that you could be spending with God, family, and other believers? I mean, let's be honest. We all, we all have something. For you, it might be your job. It might be that your job doesn't give you very much time off. You might be working from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. every single night, and it seems like you're never there for your kids. You're never there for your spouse. You're never able to see things happen. You're never able to t- actually teach them and lead your family about God. For some of us, that's a reality. And I'm not saying, like I said, I'm not saying you've got to quit your job today, but what I am saying is, Maybe there's a conversation that needs to happen to say with your spouse or with your employer that says, hey, look, my job is just a whole lot more than what I need right now. I mean, for some of us, it might be our phones. I kid you not. Just, just the other day, me, me and my wife, Hannah, yeah, you guys are all matter. All right, me and my wife, Hannah, we were sitting on the couch, and we said, you know what? We just want to have some time just to be with each other. We want to watch a movie. And so we're sitting there on the couch. We put up our computers and everything, decided we weren't going to do any work or anything that night. Well, like 30 minutes into the movie, we realized, so we put our computers away, but now our phones are stuck to our faces. Like, is this really quality time with your spouse? Our phones, our faces are in our phones. And so Hannah and I just looked at each other, and we said, we don't need these, and we took our phones and we tossed them. Obviously, we tossed them onto the couch, that way they wouldn't crack, no worries. But we tossed our phones away because we realized that these phones weren't doing any good for us. And we didn't just sit our phones next to us and say, we're, we're done with those. We took our phones and we tossed them away, making sure that there was no way of us to be able to say, oh, well, let me check out my phone real fast. You know? See, a bridge-burning faith isn't, isn't something that's glorious. It's not secure. For some of us, it might be our social media. I mean, let's be honest. Some of us don't always act the same on social media that we would in real life. I'm guilty of it. I know I am. Maybe there's something that needs to happen there because we realize that our social media is only encouraging our gossip about other people. Or maybe we realize that our social media is not directed towards leading others to Christ. It's not directed about anything like that, but it's only directed towards our own opinion and making sure everyone else knows that we're heard. 
Is our social media really affecting us for the good? Or is it affecting other people for the bad simply because we want to say our words and let it be known? And this is honestly probably the biggest one. Because I don't think there's a way to burn a bridge to this. There might be for a little bit, but I don't know if there's a real way to burn a bridge to this. But it's your pride. It's my pride. Because honestly, if you really think about it, our pride gets in the way of us following God more often than anything else. And what I mean by pride is I mean our selfishness. I mean our thoughts of saying, you know what? I got this. I don't need God. I got this new job. He can, he can take a back seat for now. Or maybe for some of us, it's about feeling embarrassed that maybe we rely on God. I know, I know some, for, for one of my friends in particular in college, he always told me, he said, I don't want to tell too many people that I follow God because I feel like it tells them that I'm weak and I need somebody else, when in reality, I think I just need myself. For some of you, it might, it might honestly be that. And like I said, I don't know if there's a real, real physical way for you to burn that bridge. What I can tell you is that staying away from that pride, staying away from that, and just letting God be in your life, letting him affect your life, better than any bridge you could possibly burn. So as, as, we, as we end right here, I just I want to ask you, I want to ask you right here, right now, where are you being called to? Where, where is this coat or this cloak coming from to be put it over your shoulders? Maybe it's not happening right now, but when it does happen in the future, are you ready for it? Are you ready for a small amount of detail, but a large, obedient faith? Are you ready for that? Not just that, but what bridges do you need to burn in your life right now? Is it your phone? Is it your social media? Is it your job? Is it your pride? Is it something that I didn't even mention? Is it something in your life that you need to burn right now? Or if you really feel like there's nothing, is there something that could be something at some point that you need to be on the watch for? So I want to encourage each and every one of you today to be willing to step away from your security, to step away from your comfort, to step away from that, and be willing to step into a destiny, a calling from God that is way greater than any security or comfort or anything like that that you could ever imagine. Or the worship team, come on up here, and we're going to sing one last song before we get into communion and stuff. You guys just want to sit and think. If you want to stand and sing, I encourage that, but I also encourage you to think about these questions that I've asked. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for this day. Thank you so much for you, for this life we've been given. Lord, I pray that we are able to burn the bridges, that we are able to recognize your calling for us when you have it, and that we're able to be ready to do, to follow your calling for us when it comes. Lord, we love you so much. We pray that today you would be with us and you would not let our pride or anything like that get in the way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.